0: Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise for not only saving us from the depths of our sin when we wanted nothing to do with you, but also giving us your word that we might know you better and know how to live for your glory. And so we ask now that you would speak to us through the word. Grant to us hearts that are eager to receive your word and an ability to concentrate and focus on your word. Father, use this passage to conform us into the image of your son. Give us hearts that burn within us with a desire to be like you in holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. It's a short but fascinating passage about a man named Herod the Tetrarch. And so let's just start by reading our verses, Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's remember where we are in terms of this gospel. Jesus has for chapters been going around the region of Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and doing all kinds of miracles, healings and exorcisms, calming storms, raising the dead. But now he gives that authority, that power, to the twelve. The twelve apostles. And he sends them out on a short-term mission trip that they too might proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and perform miracles. Now word is going around and it gets to one particular guy. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. So let's just hit the pause button right there and ask ourselves, who is this Herod? And the New Testament has four different characters named Herod, and they're all rulers of some sort, so it can get kind of confusing. The best-known Herod, the first one who appears, Uh, he is the one who started the dynasty. He is Herod the Great. If you were here this past Christmas Day, you'll remember that we studied Herod the Great in detail from Matthew chapter 2. This is the Herod uh, best known for rebuilding Solomon's Temple. And, of course, ordering the execution and slaughter of all the boys, two years old and younger, in the region of Bethlehem, in this attempt to get rid of the baby Jesus. Well, that Herod, Herod the Great, that Herod is the father of our Herod here in Luke chapter 9. Our Herod here in Luke chapter 9 is sometimes referred to as Herod Antipas. And then there's two other Herods. Uh, They both come up in the book of Acts. One of them is struck dead by God and eaten by worms, and uh, the other one is the guy who questions the Apostle Paul at his trials before sending him to Caesar. But our Herod, Herod Antipas, the Herod of Luke chapter nine, well, you'll see that Luke refers to him as Herod the Tetrarch. A Tetrarch certainly sounds cool. Like wouldn't we all love to be Tetrarchs when we're growing up? But what is the Tetrarch, and why is it important? Well, let's take the word apart. Tetra, right? This is a Greek prefix that means four. Like a tetrahedron is one of those 3D pyramid things with four triangles. An ark, that's a suffix that just means rule. Just think monarchy. And so let's put it together. Tetrarchy, that's rule of four. And so when Herod the Great died, he basically splits up his kingdom into four pieces and one of his sons, Herod Antipas, our Herod, he gets one of those four pieces. So sometimes he's referred to in the Gospels as King Herod, no, but he's not really a king. He's like a king, but technically speaking, he's a tetrarch, as Luke calls him here. But why this is important for us, uh, the reason that this Herod is even mentioned in our New Testaments, is that the piece of the kingdom that Herod Antipas got when it was divided into four, includes the region of Galilee, which, of course, is where all of Jesus' ministry in this gospel up to this point has taken place. And So with all that's been happening in Galilee, Jesus doing amazing miracles and gathering massive crowds, of course, Herod, as tetrarch of Galilee, he's going to hear the rumblings. And this is where, as careful readers of Luke, we're reminded of another seemingly minor detail that Luke threw in for us earlier. You remember at the beginning of chapter 8, we're talking about the women disciples of Jesus. So you've got Mary Magdalene, you've got Susanna, and there was one more name listed there. You remember Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and who could forget a name like Chusa, But you'll remember his occupation, Chusa's occupation, he was Herod's household manager. And so surely, right? with the wife of his household manager, his steward, the guy who's in charge of his estate, with the wife of Chusa, fully committed to Jesus as a disciple, surely Herod had heard about Jesus before. But now, now you see that the hype is even more amplified Because remember just what's happened in our chapter. Jesus has commissioned his 12 apostles to go out and basically do what he was doing in terms of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and doing miracles. And so maybe Herod could have overlooked it. It's not that big of a deal when word's going around that this one man is doing some unheard of things. Maybe it's just a legend, maybe... Maybe he really is doing miracles, but at the end of the day, he's only one guy. It's not that big of a deal. But now, it's not just one guy doing miracles. It's 12 other men. And these are not rabbis. These are not priests. These are not well-known miracle workers. These are ordinary fishermen and tax collectors. Random dudes like that. And they are also doing these wonderful things. It's now Herod... This whole Jesus thing is becoming this full-fledged movement and it's happening right under your nose in your region. It is impossible for him to ignore or dismiss at this point. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Certainly a lot was happening. Right? Jesus and his apostles, they're beginning to, as someone who put it in the book of Acts, turn the world upside down. And all of that is starting in Herod the Tetrarch's jurisdiction of Galilee. Well, that is our backdrop. Let's look now at our text. How is Herod going to process all of this? Got three points to guide us through this text. We're going to first consider Herod's confusion, and then we're going to consider Herod's conscience, and then last we'll Consider Herod's conclusion, what we'd call a big budget outline there. Point number one, Herod's conclusion, confusion, sorry, Herod's confusion, my confusion. Point number one, Herod's confusion, look at verses 7 and 8. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. He was confused, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Now you're reading this chapter straight through, right from chapter 9, verse 1, straight through. At first glance, these verses might seem to be a little bit out of place. Why do I say that? Well, look at verses 1 through 6, right? That's the verse we covered last week. Uh, That's about Jesus sending his apostles out on this short-term mission. And that section is capped off by verse 6. The apostles obediently go and they carry out the mission. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Then you've got our passage about Herod that we're covering today, verses 7 through 9. And then look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And so you can see verse 10 directly follows verse 6. Not only in terms of the topic, but also in terms of the flow of the narrative. Which makes this section look kind of like a sandwich. Right? Sandwiches, bread, meat, bread. Well, this section is apostles sent out, Herod, apostles come back. But that's not an accident. And so no, these verses aren't out of place. This is an intentional move by Luke. Mark does something similar in his recounting of these events in Mark chapter 6. Because the Herod confusion, well, that confusion about who Jesus is typifies and exemplifies the larger, wider confusion about who Jesus is, even as the apostles are going out and proclaiming his name. That is, the 12, right, they are getting everybody's attention preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and doing these amazing miracles to authenticate their message. But because most of the crowds haven't been given eyes to see and ears to hear, they remain in much confusion about who Jesus is. And Herod, right, sandwiched right in the middle, Herod is just one example of that. And so there's much confusion. Herod's confusion is typical of the crowd's. But did you notice what the confusion was about? It's about who Jesus is. Which is interesting. Because what brings these questions to Herod's mind is the activity of the disciples. The immediately preceding verse. Look at verse 6. They. They refers to the apostles. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And so the disciples, the apostles doing these miracles, that's what gets Herod's attention. But Herod's not really wrestling with questions about their identity. Who are these men? And similarly, the crowds aren't buzzing about the apostles. Wow, what's going on with those guys over there? No, all the buzz is about Jesus. The one who sent these guys out. The one who not only does signs and wonders on his own, but now has somehow transferred that power and that authority to ordinary guys like the apostles so that they too are now doing amazing signs and wonders. I think there's a practical takeaway there for each of us who claims to represent Jesus. We are not apostles but we do represent Jesus as his his disciples, well, just like their ministry, as amazing as it was, it so clearly pointed to Jesus that Herod and the crowds weren't talking about them, they were talking about Jesus. So in the same way, any ministry that we do for his name, for his glory, has to so clearly point to Jesus that it's him who ultimately receives the glory, not us. That means, for example, that it's not that big of a deal to us if nobody recognizes us and our work, as long as Jesus is glorified. Like, we don't mind being anonymous or unseen or unrecognized if our name is not attached to the ministry, because it's not about us anyway. And that means that we're not so possessive or territorial about our ministries, We don't mind if it's ultimately us doing the work or God using someone else to do the work that we thought we would be doing because it's not about what I accomplish for the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus and his glory that he can accomplish through any of his people. And that means we need to, brothers and sisters, actively guard our hearts against the desire for eyes to be on us Against the desire for the praise and acknowledgement of men? Against the need to be seen or heard or thought of in a certain way? Because again, it's not about our glory, right? It's about the glory of Christ. Our ministries, what we do for the Lord, should lead to people asking about and praising Jesus, how great thou art, not us, his servants. Sure, the people were amazed. The crowds were amazed by what the apostles were doing. But as a result of their labors, nobody's really asking about them as much as they're asking about their master. Who is he? Who is this man? With regard to that question, the popular consensus seems to consist of three main options. Three possibilities circulating about who this Jesus is could be, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Let's think about these options one at a time. We're actually going to start with number two, that Elijah had appeared not the worst guess in the world. It's wrong, but it's not the worst guess in the world, because there have been many aspects of Jesus's ministry that bring to mind the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And you'll remember, it was Jesus who, in speaking with his hometown of Nazareth, it was Jesus who compared his own ministry as a prophet to that of Elijah. Luke chapter 4, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And so it was Jesus who compared his own ministry to that of Elijah's. And then you have some of Jesus' miracles Remember the raising of the widow at Nain's son? Uh, there's just so many parallels there between that miracle and Elijah's miracle, the raising of the widow of Zarephath's son. Parallels that Luke intentionally points out so that we, the reader, would see them. And you may remember the crowd's response to seeing that miracle. Fear sees them all, Luke seven sixteen, and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us, that's most likely a reference to Elijah. And so Elijah has appeared. That's not the worst guess in the world. But we know that the one in this gospel who's most like Elijah, it's not Jesus, it's actually John the Baptist. Remember all the way back in Luke chapter 1 what the angel Gabriel said about John the Baptist? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist, powerfully calling people to repentance. Like, if anybody's like Elijah, it's John the Baptist. He's come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So now let's rule this one out. Option number two, Jesus is not Elijah. But don't forget about Elijah. Keep him in mind because we're going to see him again in a few weeks on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now let's think about option number three. It was said by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So this would have been part of kind of Jewish popular thought back then, that even besides Elijah, one of the prophets would return. Uh, Elsewhere, the disciples say that people think maybe that this is Jeremiah coming back. Now, this link between Jesus and the prophets of old, think Old Testament prophets, that really points to his teaching and proclaiming ministry. Because you remember when Jesus spoke, the crowds were astonished. They weren't just astonished by his miracles, though they were astonished by his miracles, they were also astonished by the insight and the power and the authority of his teaching. No one ever spoke like this man. Jesus was so different from the religious teachers of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. So, all that makes the people think this, this is how Isaiah and Ezekiel and those guys of old, this is how they must have preached. But we know that Jesus is not just an Old Testament prophet. Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? that John was more than a prophet, greater than any prophet that came before him, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So follow the, the syllogism here. If John is greater than any Old Testament prophet that came before him, and John is merely a forerunner to Jesus, well then what does that make Jesus certainly not an Old Testament prophet? And so we can rule out option number three also. Well, that brings us back to option number 1 John the Baptist it was said by some that John had been raised now that gives us a little new information here in this gospel right, that John at least at this point in time John is dead the last time John came up in this gospel was in chapter 7 and you'll remember there he was sending delegates from prison to Jesus, asking if Jesus was really the Messiah. Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? But now that same John is dead, and so what happened? Well, first 9, we know that Herod is taking credit for beheading him, but how exactly did that go down? We'll again hit the pause button here, and fill in some gaps from the other Gospels. So John the Baptist... Remember chapter 3? Herod locks him up in prison. And the reason that Herod locks him up in prison is because John has the audacity to confront Herod on what was an unlawful marriage. Basically, Herod had taken his half-brother Philip's wife, a lady named Herodias, who also happens to be the daughter of another one of his half-brothers. Very complicated. And then he divorced his own wife in the process. Like, there's a sin on 20 different levels there. John confronts him on that. And so for that, uh, he gets the prophet's reward of being thrown in prison. And that's the prison from which John sends delegates to Jesus in chapter 7. Now while he's in prison, Herodias, so she's now Herod's wife, she wants John put to death, but Herod actually defends John the Baptist. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 6. Herodias had a grudge against him And wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet, he heard him gladly. Keep those verses in mind. One day, it's Herod's birthday, and there's this big banquet, and and all these people have gathered... And Herodias has her daughter dance for Herod, and Herod is so pleased that he says, ask me for whatever you want. I I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom, which is basically his way of saying you can have anything you'd like. He's probably thinking that she's going to ask for some money or a new wardrobe or like a new car or something like that. But to his surprise, she asked for none of those things, Instead, at the prodding of her mother, she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. But now Herod's torn. Mark tells us that he was exceedingly sorry. Because remember, Herod knows that John is a righteous man, a righteous and holy man. He knows that it's wrong to even imprison him. How much more wrong would it be to put him to death? But at the same time, He's made this vow in front of all these people and he he feels like he's got a safe face. Uh, Should I give in to the pressure from my wife and, and the pressure of everybody who's watching or should I do what's right, what I know to be right? Well, Herod has John the Baptist put to death. And it's this dead John the Baptist who some of the crowds apparently suspect has been raised from the dead in the form of Jesus. So that's option number one. John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so point number one, Herod's confusion. Herod is perplexed. He's confused. This Jesus about whom I hear these things. Is he, option number one, John the Baptist raised from the dead? Or is he, option number two, Elijah? Or is he, option number three, one of the prophets of old? Which brings us to point number two, Herod's conscience. Look at the first part of verse 9. Herod said, John, I beheaded. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? As Herod considers the three popular opinions, well, he knows that for him, there is something very unique about option number one. Because option number one is the man that he himself killed. John, I beheaded. Matthew fills in the picture even more clearly for us. Herod is convinced, he's convinced that option number one must be true, that Jesus must be John raised from the dead. Look at Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But here's the thing. Herod seems thoroughly convinced of this opinion, of this option. But of the three options that we've considered, like they're all wrong. But of the three options that we've considered, this is the one that makes the least sense. Two reasons why I say that. At First, it doesn't make sense because look at what Herod says there. He says, Jesus is John the Baptist. That is why these miraculous works are at power, or, sorry, miraculous powers are at work within him. But that doesn't make any sense because John the Baptist didn't do miracles. John chapter 10, verses 40 and 41. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John, John the Baptist, had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and here's what the people said. John did no sign. John didn't do miracles. John didn't do signs. And So why? Why would Herod think that Jesus was John? Because Jesus is doing miracles. That makes no sense. Second, it doesn't make sense because Jesus and John were contemporaries and they were born six months apart. And you'll remember it was John who baptized Jesus. Maybe they looked alike, maybe they both spoke about similar topics like repentance and salvation, but how could they possibly be the same person if they were on several occasions in the same place at the same time? Apparently, some people think that Hector and Carlos look alike. I don't see it at all. But listen, we've all mixed people up before, and so I am not judging anybody on that. But apparently, one Sunday, someone went up to Carlos after service and told him, great job leading music today while Hector was right in front of them on the stage, still playing. (laughs) How could they possibly be the same person if they were both in the same place at the same time? In the same way, John baptized Jesus. John cannot be Jesus. So rationally... Logically, this option makes no sense. But for Herod, there's something stronger than rationality and logic at play here. His troubled conscience. Mark 6.16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. John, whom I beheaded. He knows that what he did in giving in to his wife's evil plan, what he did in executing a righteous man, what he did in killing a true prophet of God, he knows that what he did was wicked. And so, even as he tries to look past this sin and forget about the evil that he's done, well, his soul is haunted and troubled by guilt. His conscience testifies against him, accuses him, John, whom I beheaded. Conscience, biblically, it's a God-given common grace that every person, believer or unbeliever, has within them. Our conscience bears witness to the law of God that's written on our hearts. It's why, generally speaking, we feel bad for doing the wrong thing, or at least we should. For Christians, of course, we want to align our consciences with the Word of God, where we want to subject our consciences to what God says is right and wrong. But even for unbelievers who don't care at all for the Word of God, unbelievers like Herod, Well, your conscience can be a strong witness against you when you know that you have done something that is wrong. For example, killing a prophet of God. And consciences can become defiled. Consciences can become seared, as the New Testament talks about elsewhere. But even with what I'm sure was a defiled and seared conscience, considering all the evil that he had done. Here, Herod's conscience doesn't let him forget the prophet that he beheaded. His conscience bothers him enough that even though it makes no logical sense at all, John did no sign. John baptized Jesus. It makes no sense. But just the mere resemblance is more than enough to trouble his soul for the evil that he had done. What Edgar Allan Poe famously captured in *The Tell-Tale Heart*—that right? overacuteness of the senses and the beating of the heart of the dead man under the planks—well, for Herod, it's the detached head of the prophet John I beheaded. It's that detached head that his conscience presents to him as evidence of his evil. Point number two: Herod's conscience. Brings us now to point number three, Herod's conclusion. So, what is his conclusion here? He's got these three options. He's confused. His conscience, what he himself did to John the Baptist, troubles him enough that he can't get John out of his mind. Uh, Jesus must be John risen from the dead. So, Herod, what are you going to do about all that? What is your conclusion? the end of verse 9, tells us, and he sought to see him. He sought to see him. Now, we have to admit, that's a bit open-ended. Like, at this point in the gospel, we're not entirely sure how to interpret that, how to read that. Is he genuinely broken by his sin? A guilty conscience never saved anybody. But perhaps in his guilty conscience, He's now going to Jesus, and so he sought to see him. We're told the same thing about Zacchaeus later in the gospel. Where he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And we know that Jesus found him, and he was saved. And so, is Herod, in his guilt, in his brokenness, is he being drawn to true repentance and faith and salvation like Zacchaeus later would be? Or... Is this seeking to see Jesus kind of like his interest in John the Baptist? You'll remember what we read earlier. Herod heard John gladly. He was glad to hear John the Baptist. He knew that John was a righteous and holy man. But obviously that produced no fruit in him at all. As evidenced by the fact that he killed him. So is Herod's interest in Jesus like his interest in John? Only at this very superficial level, wanting to hear him, but at the same time clutching onto his life of sin. Just from reading verse 9, and he sought to see him, we would never know the difference. But thankfully, we're not really left guessing, because this isn't the last time we hear from Herod in this gospel. He makes two more appearances... The first one is in chapter 13, and look at what it says there about Herod in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Gives us a little bit of insight on his motives here in chapter 9. When he sought to see him, because at least by chapter 13, he wants to see Jesus to kill Jesus, just like he killed John. Maybe if he still thinks that Jesus is John back from the dead, he wants to kill John again. But then there's this second appearance, his last appearance in the gospel, and this one is very telling. It's all the way at the end of the book in chapter 23. Luke 23, verses 6 and following. Jesus is on trial here. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was the Galilean, and we know why that's significant When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, remember the Tetrarchy, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he'd been seeking to see Jesus, now he saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. For he had long desired to see him, that ties directly back to our verse in chapter 9, and he sought to see him as you see in chapter 23, his desire to see Jesus has nothing to do with genuine repentance, brokenness over sin, seeking a savior, desiring to submit to his rule. No, his desire is just to see Jesus do some cool tricks. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. Continuing in verse 9, so he questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And now, whereas we were unsure in chapter 9, well, we can see crystal clear where Herod's heart is at. He mocks, he abuses, he ridicules Jesus, and then he sends him off. To his death. Herod's question here in chapter 9. Who is this? Who is this about whom I hear such things? That is the dominant question of this gospel. It's the question that literally everybody has been asking. Luke chapter 5, right? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, Who is this? Then Luke chapter 7, it's the guests of Simon the Pharisee. They're all sitting around at table and they begin to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then in chapter 8, it's the disciples' turn. Who is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And here it's Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, asking the same question, Who is this? So maybe the biggest takeaway here... Is that simply asking the question, who is this? Simply inquiring about Jesus, being curious about Jesus, learning about Jesus? Well, that ultimately can amount to very, very little. Because Herod did exactly that. He asked the right question Who is this? But his conclusion a half-hearted, sinfully motivated, seeking of Jesus with no desire to submit to his rule, well, his conclusion led him nowhere but to the gates of hell. Point number three, Herod's conclusion. And so friends, as we think about this short narrative here in Luke chapter 9, we ought to let Herod's story serve us as a stern warning. Herod is one who was boldly confronted on his sin. One who has the light of righteousness shined into his life by none other than John the Baptist. And Herod is one who on multiple occasions, remember John is his prisoner, he went to listen to John and he heard him gladly. He's listening to good preaching. And Herod is one who even after he commits this atrocious murder by beheading John, he's got enough of a conscience that it provokes within him thoughts of John when word of Jesus was going about. And Herod is one who, after all of that, eventually does get the face-to-face meeting with Jesus that he sought and in spite of all of that, all of those privileges, there's no repentance. There's no change. There's no crying out for God's mercy. There's maybe no clearer example of how conscience alone, of feeling bad for something that you've done, feeling guilty for your sin, being reminded of the awful things that you've done, perhaps even being somewhat remorseful over the things that you've done and committed. Well, conscience alone has no power to save. Our consciences can do an awfully good job of pointing fingers at us, accusing us and heaping guilt upon us. But in terms of removing that guilt, paying for that sin, freeing us from those accusations, we are absolutely powerless in our own strength. And no, for that, that, we need Jesus. The only one who can cleanse our consciences, the only one who can remove not only the guilt of sin, but the entire record of sin itself. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save the lost. So maybe today you're sitting here and you know that you are not a Christian. It's your conscience, that God given gift of conscience within you, even right now, it's heavy within you. Because you know that you have sinned against the Holy God. You know that in spite of all the things that you've tried to do to clear your conscience, to clean it, to make yourself feel better about your sin, at the end of the day, those efforts amount to nothing. Like, you know you're guilty you know you're headed for an eternity in hell. You're going to be punished for the sins that you've committed against the Holy God. And so your conscience is, even right now, testifying to that truth. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the Gospel, is that your conscience can be made clean. And not just in a subjective sense. Like you don't have to feel guilty about what you've done. You don't have to feel guilty before God but even more importantly, in an objective sense, because Jesus died for sinners like you and me. On the cross, he takes all the sins of his people. He suffers the wrath of God that those sins deserve in our place, and in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteous record. So that all of those sins that weigh so heavily on our consciences, even right now, Well, they can be paid for. They can be cast into the depths of the sea. And that salvation can be yours even today. If you cry out for Jesus to save you. If you turn from your sins and place your trust in Christ. Christ alone. Repent and believe and you can be saved. And then that heart... That you, in your own strength, can do nothing to cleanse. You can remove all the stains of sin. Make it as white as snow. We sang it this morning. No work I do, no gift I give, can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live, but, the good news of the gospel, but, Jesus died and rose again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, the gospel, right? The death and resurrection of Christ, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, that's the saddest thing about Herod. He's got this guilty conscience, he's got this evil conscience, and he sought to see Jesus. He actually does seek the one person in the universe who can save him from that guilty conscience, who can save him from his sin, who can purify him, but he goes about it completely wrong. Not coming humbly, not coming broken, not coming in faith, but clinging on to his sin. That's a tragedy, He's now got an eternity in hell to reflect on that. But you, I tell you, today is the day of salvation. And today you can repent and believe and have your conscience wiped clean, your sins forgiven. Father, we thank you for all of your scriptures we thank you for passages like this that serve us as dire warnings of the urgency to repent and place our trust in you. Father, we pray that you would cause sinners today to be born again, or that they might be saved even this morning.